This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Today is June 30th of 2022. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast. Now, hopefully, like me, you're getting geared up for the Best Friends National Conference next week. I am so excited. I can't wait to see all of my old pals and meet new ones. And I will be recording some interviews while I'm there, and you may well be one of them. But that can only happen if you email me, podcast at bestfriends.org. Let me know you're coming, and hopefully we can at the very least meet, and if you're up for it, you can sit down with me and tell me more about you and your work for a future episode. Again, podcast at bestfriends.org. That email address will also be in the show notes area on your podcast player. Now listen, I am lucky. I'm lucky to work for Best Friends. I'm lucky to be able to go to the conference next week. And I'm lucky to be able to count so many incredible people in this movement as friends. And many of them, like our guests this week, were people I met for the first time at the Best Friends National Conference. Over the years, I've had the honor of being asked to play the role of a game show host on the stage at the conference, I know. It's always just intended to be a fun little break between everything that's going on, but it's given me the opportunity to get to know so many cool people who willingly took part as a contestant, probably before they truly knew what they were getting into. But today's guest, Fraley Rodriguez, he was part of the chaotic version of Family Feud we did up on stage during the conference in Atlantic City in 2017. And here we are now, a few years later, chatting on the Best Friends podcast. Well, he joined the Best Friends staff a couple of years ago. Today, Fraley is the director of life-saving centers for the East region. I always enjoy spending time with him. He's eternally upbeat, incredibly smart, and funny. Check it out. My conversation with Fraley Rodriguez. All right. Well, first things first, you are going to be at the Best Friends National Conference next week. I am. Yes, sir. I will be there. Well, I'm excited to see you. Well, I am too, John. It's been three years, four. Yeah, a really long time, man. Way too long. But it'll be fun to catch up with you and I, I guess about, you know, 15, 1600 of our closest friends. I'm really excited. This will be my second big in-person conference. I was at HSUS this year and it was great. I think most people really, they, I think number one was relationship for them to be able to see just everybody. So. I'm really excited about the Best Friends Conference. Wait, you said second big conference. You mean like your second conference this year, not ever? No, correct. Just this year. Yes. Since COVID. I guess we can say since COVID. Well, I was going to ask you what you're looking forward to the most about getting back to the conference. But since you've already been to Expo this year, many of us, myself included, have not been to a conference since pre-pandemic. So what tips do you have for us, Fraley? I'm going to assume that we're all on a blanket no-hugging policy. I don't know if the no-hugging's blanket rule, because hugging's very regional. I am a Puerto Rican and from the South, so hugging is just comes natural to me. I will tell you that I think the thing that we have missed the most of the in-person is not only the relationship, but really just getting stuff done. Like I think strategically, you're able to partner with someone a little better in person. So I'm actually excited about what's going to come out out of the conference after folks get in, you know, they get engaged, they, they're, they're going to be entertained. They're just going to be refreshed. So I'm really pumped about what comes out. And I think specifically this year, 2022, with everything that we're dealing with in animal welfare, I think they just need 
just a couple of days to to kind of refresh. It'll be really good to see what comes afterwards. So for people that don't know you, Fraley, who are you? Where do you live? Yeah, you're a married guy. You have kids. I do. I am. Uh, I, I'm Fraley Rodriguez. I like long walks on the beach. I live in Orlando, Florida. Been here, believe it or not, most of my life. We moved from the island from San Juan, Puerto Rico, in 1991 to Orlando. I was a young buck, 11 years old, and this is home. I uh, I lived in Texas for six years. They were six great years, but then I came back to Florida, and I've been here ever since. I am married. I uh, love my wife. Uh, she is a strong woman, uh, specifically right now. She has some health issues, and she keeps showing us that she is a superhero for kids. And this is where I, I lose people. Surprising enough, uh, I have two 18-year-olds that just graduated high school, a 16-year-old daughter, and then uh, amazing 10-year-old, so 10-year-old daughter. So that's who I am. Been in the industry. I, I was doing the math 16 years, 17 years. Uh, started in 2006. And man, I I think once you're in it, you're either stay for a little bit or you stay for a long time. I think it, which is, I'm glad to say that I stayed for a long time. And I'm really, that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of is that, that I've been here for a while because I love it. Well, listen, I was going to say something to you about your wife and the health challenges. I saw a post, I think on uh, Facebook. Uh, I wasn't sure if you wanted me to air that out on the podcast, but since you mentioned it, I will just say that I can confidently speak on behalf of everyone listening to this, when I say that we are pulling for your wife's recovery and thinking of you and your family. I appreciate that. That means the world. So you said you started in the business in 06. What got you started? Yeah, uh, I was literally a pastor of student ministries, which I know once you get to know me, people either say, oh, I can see it, or other folks will be like, oh, I heard you curse before. But I was pastor of student ministries. I was living it up in Orlando. Just things happen. Uh, situations change. And I just started looking for another job. And I came into it as an accident. I answered a, a job posting for a humane educator. And I'm like, I love teenagers. I love kids. Like I can go and talk to people about animals. Like I just changed the topic, you know? So I answered the ad. It took me, I think it was about four months uh, of interviews and finally, uh, the executive director at the time looked at me and said, do you want to start next week? And I said, yes, let's do this. You know, I, here I am. I have three kids. I'm changing careers. And it was the best decision. I had a couple other uh, job offers at the time. A few of them paid a little bit of more money, but I I just said, I love community and the job was literally on the road, talking to people and talking to the community about what we, who we are, what we are, what we're doing. And I just, man, I, I thought that's perfect for me. Let's do it. Let's jump on it. So that was 2006 and it, it worked out. And since then I've done anything and everything from humane education uh, to we have done cruelty investigations, operations, worked in the clinics, worked with development. And uh, ultimately, when I left uh, my previous position in Pet Alliance, I was the chief operating officer. And that's not really about everything that we've done. It was just, it was an awesome team that I was able to be part of. And we did great work. So, and you can see when you start, 
what's missing, what's lacking. And a lot of it for us was, it was just, we weren't looking at, at animals as individuals. You know, we can all say like, what got you here? And then what kept you here? And it was, we could do better. We could do better. And that's probably what kept me here. About two years and now here it is 16. And I still believe we could do better. So, and we're, and we're almost there. So back in 2006, you're saying, hey, I want to get an animal welfare. I want to change my career. Did you have an understanding of, of the situation in animal welfare, of what's happening with animals in animal shelters? You know, this position of a humane educator. Great. I'll go around. I can talk to people, talk to kids about responsible pet ownership or whatever. But did you have any idea of kind of the larger animal welfare situation, as it were? Uh, you know, that's a great question. No one's no one's ever prodded at that that deep, John. And no, I was isolated. Uh, I came in as an outsider, and I would tell you that that's probably one of the reasons that I that I have stuck around as long as because I looked at it as an outsider. So you're right. When I came in, I, I was isolated to oh, this is what we do. When folks use the old terminology of oh, 100% of our adoptable animals are adopted. I thought, man, that's great. That's awesome. But then when you start digging into the reality of like uh, our save rates less than 50%, what are we doing? Uh, what kind of decisions are we making? Wait, this is not, uh, we, we could do better. Why? So my isolation was helpful to me and I was isolated to just the greater Orlando area. But as you start learning and educating yourself, then you realize like this is a a problem across the nation and for the most part we're all facing the same problems what's working here what's working there what's working in this community so the isolation led me to educate myself on wanting to do do better but that you're you're right i came in as a young folk as an outsider and that was bad at first but i think overall it was better for me personally yeah, same for me, I think. I mean, I knew, but I didn't. I did know, but I didn't. You know, I was a radio news journalist and I would do animal-related stories as often as my news director would let me, but I hadn't spent a lot of time in animal shelters, you know? I mean, as a volunteer, I did what I do best, which was largely going to events, selling merch, running my mouth. So, you know, I don't think I really truly had a clue of that larger picture. But once you learned all that, Fraley, I mean, what made you want to stick around? Yeah, and I think... I know for me personally, it became a competition. Like I wanted to be the best that that's who I am. Everything's kind of a competition. And, and I felt like we, like, why are we not saving them? Why are we making these decisions when, uh, how can we include the community? Why are we not doing offsite adoptions? Why are we not, we were still doing home checks at the time. Why are we, we doing all that? Let's look at it, everything. And you're right. I think what, got me to stick around was for me, it was community. For me, it was, I wanted Orlando to be, to be no kill. I wanted Orlando to have, to really be pet friendly, to really understand that they had a great humane society. They had a great animal care and control that they, that really we were trying to be progressive. So um, I think that as well, the challenge of it, back to the regional piece of it, of, of your hometown, probably was a huge benefit for me. So the organization you started with, the Pet Alliance of Greater Orlando, right? Yeah. When I first joined, we were the SPCA of Central Florida. And then throughout the years, we changed our name to uh, Pet Alliance. We 
we had two shelters, four clinics, and we did a lot of outreach and getting out into the community. We, I think by the time I left, we had about over 20 offsite adoptions locations and uh, over 20 something percent of our adoptions were done offsite from our locations. But John, I think you, br- you brought up something, you know, it, we do have to, at times, we do have to look at the history of animal welfare because, you know, history, I, I'm a big believer history teaches us a few lessons. And, and also we should be proud of the work that we've done collectively as a whole to get us to, we really, I know when we look back at No Kill 2025, it, and that mantra it was looked at, it, can we really do it? Can we really do it? And now we're looking at it as like, dang it, we're going to do it. And we're working hard. So I, I, I think that's what for me has been the history of it. And now uh, what I'm doing and working with more shelters, it's like, we got this. We, we're, we just need support and help. And we, if we help each other as organizations, we really, really can, can get there. So the Pet Alliance of Greater Orlando, from the research I did for this, anyway, my cursory research, I saw the the organization really has a, a big focus on both sides of the leash, as we like to say. You know, this understanding that a pet in need, very likely there's a person in need, you know, again, something today that much more widely accepted and understood, but still many places not really recognized that way. But it seemed like this is something that your organization was doing for a long time, you know, while many of us were still stuck in the whole, you know, people are terrible mentality. Oh, uh, you know, I I laugh at times about uh, our shelter was doing uh, emergency uh, fostering for domestic violence uh, situations in 1999. That was pre-Fraley. Uh, they were progressive there. I think it also helped, I, I will say, bringing folks on that, that were different which started happening in 2006 or folks that kind of like myself that were outsiders, it helped tremendously to kind of look at it from a perspective of we can include the community more and more and more. And we did. We, um, uh, I'll say one of my highlights for me personally and, and for the community is we hosted a, a pet walk that was viewed as a fundraiser for external folks, but it was really internally a community event in downtown Orlando where we would have about 20,000 people come. And it was it was okay financially, but it was great to get the word out that folks really enjoy pets. They wanted pets to be part of their, their society. I'll say that in itself was, it is people oriented. We made it as much about the people as the pets. And no animal has ever left the shelter adopted without a person. And I think we got to look at it that way, that people are the solution. So we really did. We, I, I look at it now and it was, I don't know what I was thinking then, but I put this research into if we answered our phone calls, we could serve more people and we would actually help our shelter reduce our intakes and save more lives if we just answered our phone calls. I kept working on this for probably a couple of years until I was able to convince our board and our leadership that we needed to do this. So we started a call center. We were getting about 10,000 phone calls every single month and no one was answering those calls. I mean, they would go to a voicemail or someone would try to pick it up or, uh, so we literally opened up a call center 
And the reason we looked at it was if we can answer the phone call, we can actually give resources to someone before they have to turn in a pet. Or if they need veterinary assistance, we can schedule them to our veterinary clinic and help them. And I think I'll say that that's where we should really be proud of our our work moving forward is that we are thinking more and more about helping the person as well as the pets. And we in animal welfare should look at ourselves as a uh, as a huge part of the community. And I think that helped us in Orlando that we really did look at it. We would, you know, we would meet with the mayor, we would meet with our politicians, we would meet with the community leaders, we would be at the schools, uh, we would take our summer camp to uh, downtown Orlando to the community where where folks could not drive themselves to our, our summer camp. So we brought it to them because we really wanted to make sure that that the community community knew, knew that we wanted to be part of them. So That call center stuff's incredible, Fraley. And I think customer service, obviously an area where every single organization can improve. And people might hear this and think, hey, sure, great, I'd love to. I mean, it'd be awesome to have a call center, but who has the time? Or we'd love to, but we don't have the budget to allocate resources to be more customer facing. You had to have had to make some tough decisions organizationally to be able to answer 10,000 phone calls. Yeah, we did. Uh, as you're asking me about that, I'm, I got a little post-traumatic stress disorder of kind of uh, talking to the staff about it because operationally speaking, it was it was difficult. But I'll give my managers credit at the time. I just went to them and I said, I need a staff member from your staffing to be a phone person to literally answer the phone call. And this is why. And they saw the big picture. They saw the need. And they also saw we probably are overstaffed if someone else is answering the phone calls and we don't have to call people back. So that's how we started it. We literally took folks that were already in the organization. We just moved them and, and gave them a new a new job. We had uh, we started it with five people. And the only commitment we made outside of our budget, we, uh, we hired a a customer service manager that was literally professionally trained to run a call center. It was a great idea at the time. I can't give myself credit. He just fell into my lap and I said, you're hired. And he gave us a year of just uh, setting up like standards of how fast we needed to call and why we don't want to send calls to voicemail and, and all of that good stuff. But at the end of the day, I can tell you that we were answering over 90% of our calls. So when you look at it, 9,000 calls were getting answered. We're, in the past, it might have been four to five. So the conversations that have led us to have are, are the rest of the staff that weren't part of the call center saw the benefit of having an informed person come into the intake department, knowing that they were going to be able to, to actually literally do some surrender prevention and keep pets at home just by answering that phone call. So it was great. I'm still really proud of the work. They still have it. And I really do encourage organizations. So if you're listening to this, call call me, email me. I have all the documents because I really do, whether it's a, a, a pool of volunteers that can do it. And I say a pool of volunteers because we are actually in our New York center. We have a pool of volunteers that answer all of the phone calls for our New York center. And that's extremely helpful for them. Because we are doing some counseling, some surrender prevention, some resources 
to the folks uh, in the five boroughs just because we're answering those phone calls for them. I think there's a really important lesson in there, Fraley, about the role of each organization. You know, what are we here to do? to serve our community, right? And I, I think a lot of times organizations, you know, can just get very entrenched in doing what they want. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that. Let me be very clear. And you can run a very stable, solid, good nonprofit organization doing whatever it is you want to do. But I think if we believe that our role as individuals and as individual organizations is to serve our community, serve the people and pets in the community, you know, talking to the community, understanding where the needs are and how your organization can be part of that. So yeah, I just think listening to the community is so huge. Uh, for sure. It, it gave us that information that we needed that was beyond the data because now we were literally talking to folks and, and giving, them, giving them options and then had the opportunity to hear back from them if those options worked or not. So it led to a lot of cool programming for, for us. It led to our staff being less uh, less stress about an appointment system. We also around the same time introduced manage intake and it was, you know, for six months, our staff was concerned of like what happens to these animals. Like if we do appointments and the data from the call center allows the opportunity to say like, man, we're making appointments. We are, they're coming up, they're showing up, or if they don't show up, they're not going across the street. They're not going to another shelter. They're actually doing what we asked them to do. So uh, I, I'm telling you, John, I'm a big believer in it. I think it's looking outside, uh, looking at every, at the organization as a whole, not just as an animal shelter, but looking at as a whole as a community organization and really looking at it. I'm helping people, animals, I'm helping the community. Well, you mentioned the New York Center. Good transition then into your role with Best Friends. What is your title and what do you do? Uh, so I am the director of life-saving centers on the East Coast. So I oversee our, I think most folks that listen to this podcast know we have uh, several locations throughout the United States. And I oversee our Atlanta, New York, and Houston location. And those teams have programs throughout the East region and throughout Texas. But yeah, it is. I came on to Best Friends in 2020. Uh, people ask me all the time if I missed the, the shelter life. And I would tell you that I, I think I experience it every single day. Uh, and I love what we do. I love our job. I, I, I love how we at Best Friends really, we don't just talk at people. We really walk with people and we really are. And I know I see it probably more every single day, but we really uh, just partner with them, help them. And that's what our, our teams do. We've been able to start satellite foster programs, which are, it's basically a virtual foster program for a shelter. The hardest piece of starting a foster program is launching it usually because it's overwhelming. So we've been able to partner with several shelters over the last two years and start their foster program without putting someone in their shelter. And it's been the amazing work of our, our staff but specifically the staff of the shelters that we're partnering in their volunteers. And then at the end of our, of our term with them, we literally turn them a, a whole foster program. And I look at Antietam Humane Society in that border of Maryland and Pennsylvania. Uh, we started a, a foster program for cats, for kittens, for them. And 
and seeing their success after we left is is why we do this. The area you oversee, Fraley, it's huge. Obviously, uh, not just big. They're they're really different in so many ways. Different culturally, different meteorologically. I mean, uh, the issues facing those communities are different. The way the local municipalities operate, the forms of government, the the needs of people and pets uh, can be different. It, it's just so interesting to me. But that really has to be a challenge for you. I, John, I think that's what probably keeps me up at night. If you were to to ask me, you know, I come from a our intake at the height of it at Pet Alliance was about eighteen thousand animals, and with about a fifty percent uh, save rate or less. And by the time I left, we were about seven or eight thousand animals. We were at a a save rate of over. Uh, 94%, I think, that last year. And again, it's a silo. We were doing good work. We were helping our partners. We were helping in the state of Florida. But for example, cat was our biggest issue. And now I work with shelters in Texas. Uh, and cats aren't, cats are some of their issues, but so are dogs. Uh, and if you tell someone in, in Florida that dogs are, are a big issue, in a place like Houston, they're going to, they don't, they just don't experience it. And I think that's been the biggest benefit. And probably what keeps me up at night is that there's still shelters that are struggling because their intake is incredibly high and they don't have resources. Some of them are, uh, they're, they don't have the resources of veterinarians, of staff, of uh, community members or foster homes. So it's been really interesting to see the vast not only we speak about it regionally, but it's I, I want to actually get it more to the microcosm of individual shelters struggle with different things. And that's what we deal with. You know, we're, I have the privilege to work in Houston with our staff there. And within Houston last year, within a 60 mile radius, they saw 91,000 animals uh, within a 60 mile radius of, of Houston. So when you talk about, well, well, how do, how can we do, how can we help them? It's not just about transporting animals. How do they literally reduce those animals from coming into the shelter? It's amazing the the shelters that are, that are really doing just amazing work. This, this last weekend, that's friends in Houston was able to help two large municipal shelters, one Montgomery County, as well as uh, Harris County. Uh, which the city of Houston literally sits in Harris County for for folks that uh, aren't from Houston. And they were able to move 130 dogs to Pennsylvania and Delaware for a huge adoption event. And that's great. The director of Montgomery County flew on the plane. The assistant director drove dogs. So it's, it really is a team effort. But when you look at it collectively, is that's awesome for those 130 dogs. How do we get them to reduce their intake so that it's they don't have to move 130 dogs. And those are what we're working with. And in uh, New York's totally different. You know, you're dealing with, with a lot of medical cases, a lot of that small to medium sized dog that you look at and say, oh, we can, how can we save them? And then they have behavior issues because they've been stuck in the city and, you know, lack of, of green space and lack of, uh, behavior assistance and then veterinary care is so high in the city compared to other places. So 
it, it is vastly different. Well, sorry, dude. I wasn't trying to bring up things that will keep you up at night. Oh, it's all right. You know, I also have four kids, so they do, and two of them are 18. So that probably keeps me up more. Well, you mentioned transport. Another good segue into something I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you know, so much of our life saving today across the country, I feel, is achieved through transport. You know, we're uh, taking animals from communities, from shelters where they're very unlikely to have a positive outcome and getting them to communities where they will have that positive outcome. It's been such a huge part of the life-saving toolkit for animal welfare for, for a long time now. It is today as viable as it ever was, I feel like. Uh, maybe not so much right now when everybody's struggling with positive outcomes. But, you know, as we continue increasing the save rate nationally, you've got to think at some point we're going to be seeing the need for transports decrease, you know, as communities become more proficient at saving lives in their own community, there will be less need for pets in their community to leave, right? So what is happening today with transports, you know, from your role in this big East Coast region, are we collective animal welfare? We Are we still doing transports uh, at the same pace? Is it starting to, to decrease at all? We are. And I think that's where uh, one of the benefits of Best Friends is that we're very data-driven. And I think most people uh, see the data, but sometimes they don't, they don't ask the questions of what is this individual shelter doing to get themselves to the most positive outcomes? And at times, the balance of those positive outcomes is heavily weighted to transport. So for some individual shelters, we have to help them balance out their positive outcomes to do more outcomes internally into their community so that they're less dependent on transport. So all to say that transports are here to stay, we have to balance it out for certain shelters in certain regions. And I think once we, which I know it's a big, a big, big statement, but once we're able to balance it out, I think it'll be more manageable. I think we're just beating ourselves up into finding partners. We're all, even at Best Friends, we're all calling the same receiving partners and say, hey, we have a shelter. And so, uh, and we're trying to do better with our transport map, with actually in Texas, we introduced with our medical director, Dr. Aaron, and our regional strategist, Paula. We actually introduced us a, a transport symposium where we're helping shelters even do a little bit of medical so that they can vaccinate upon intake, set some standards so that their transports become more manageable and their receiving partners don't become so overwhelmed. So I think we still have a lot to fix in transport, but I, I also think it's here to stay. We just have to balance it out. I'm tempted to get on my soapbox about transport. You okay? I can take it. Let's go. <laughs> well, be careful what you ask for. Um, well, okay. So in a previous role at Best Friends, I worked on some transport related projects, technology projects. And it's one of those things that as you take a step or two back, you pretty quickly realize just how disorganized so much of our transport efforts are. Don't get me wrong. There are some great organizations, great platforms out there helping my friend Chris Roy at Dubert. He's done amazing things in this area, but so much of it is still one-to-one -one relationships, you know, Shelter A in Alabama and Shelter B in Michigan. They've done regular transports over the years, and that's great. But, you know, the vans, they're usually half full. And guess what? There are lots of half full vans going that same direction on a pretty regular basis. 
And now more than ever, I think we have to figure out how to maximize our resources. And it's like, well, I just can't wrap my head around fairly. It's like as a human race, we've gotten very good at transporting things. We can go on Amazon right now and order something. And in some cases, in a lot of places, it gets to me the same day. And even in some of like the most rural parts of the country, they can get you anything in two days. So that logistics part of transport, hopefully it's something that the movement can continue looking at ways to make better because right now there are lots of inefficiencies and, and just think about how much money we could save if we could be more efficient in these areas. Oh, John, you, I don't even, that's a great soapbox. I would agree a hundred percent with you and I, and my, I see a lot of transports. Uh, our team does a lot of transports and I, I'm going to have to share the podcast with my best friend. Um, my best friend owns a, a logistic company, a transportation company. And that's what he does is he's in the trucking business. His family's been in the trucking business for a long, long time. And we don't talk about it into to what you just said is we really do have to look at it as logistical we transport should be looked at as UPS, FedEx, and, and Amazon and, and getting produce from one place to another because it is. There's a lot of duplication of services. There's a lot of, uh, like I said, we call the same receiving partners. They're called by 10 times just to accept the transport. Uh, and to say that, on top of that, we just keep doing it and it we don't want to get to a point where we're just transporting disease from one place to another, uh, the part of disease control, the part of duplication of services, the part, there's so many parts that we still have to fix. And I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why I'm a big believer in, in transport should, it needs to be balanced out. Is it here to stay? I, I really do, but it really does need to be balanced out to communities that really need it and also not as the ultimately outcome for positive outcomes. That's so. no small feat to try to, uh, I guess, herd cats, if you will, uh, you know, try to understand who's doing what and where and, you know, trying to bring more order to something like transports. It's a, it's a big thing. And again, I, there are lots of great things happening out there with transport. So I don't want it to sound like I'm down on it and what's happening because far from it. But I think it's important to, to point out that I think it really should be thought of as a question of making each community sustainable. You know, how much effort are we going to put into creating the most incredible logistically sound transport program, you know, when we could focus on getting to a point where we don't even need to transport? Well, I, I, it is to the efficiency point. I keep saying it, but I'm a big believer in that there's some places that they're probably doing too much. And we really have to entrust that local community. We go back to the local community. We really do need to show them that they are part of the solution and, and local adoptions are part of it. Keeping pets at home is another part of it, not just moving animals from, I'll say it, from the south to the north. So I, I agree. I, I was able to to do a presentation last year at our conference with, with Chris and Dubert, and um, his, his platform is great. I also think that at conference, it, it is a big conversation. It's one of, I have a couple of appointments set up at conference to, to try to gather some cats to, to kind of discuss that, of really partnering with several organizations so that they are looking at transports, not just as a moving an animal from one place to the other, but solution-based. Like we were able to move a hundred uh, 
cats from this particular shelter. So what's that shelter going to do now? Instead of filling those banks with 100 cats, what can they, what's their bandwidth to be able to now fill them with only 50 because they were able to keep some? What do you love most about your work, Fraley? Believe it or not, it's the people we work with. You know, John, I, I take it seriously that I'm an outsider uh, and I don't mean it bad. I, I am glad that I come from a perspective of business mind, people minded, and there are some amazing people in this country doing animal welfare. And you know them. And I think that's my favorite part of this job. We work with some amazing people uh, that are running some great shelters that that we need to highlight probably a little more for the great things that they're doing. And, and that's the highlight, the people that we work with. So if you could snap your fingers right now and change something about animal welfare, anything, what would it be? Um, I would say... Ooh, John. So I would say I think we probably should increase some merger. I call them mergers and acquisitions that come from the corporate world. But I, I really do think that we should look at it strategically, business-wise, of how can we not duplicate services and how can we really literally work in collaboration with one another. It, it is my new thing that I'm saying now. Uh, we have a lot of animal welfare coalitions throughout the United States. But they're just coalitions where they come in and talk and then they and then they work out into group and go back to doing the same thing. And I really do think we should look into more of doing that collaboration. How can we get together as animal welfare groups and really look at the say solving one problem? And some sometimes it means that I might not be able to do that well. So why am I doing it? Let me help someone else do their what they do well. And I, and I think that includes mergers. It includes, instead of coalitions, collaboration into really strategic problem solving. And if I can snap my finger, I think that's one of the things I would do, specifically in regions where big cities are doing well or have a lot of money for animal welfare. And they're just doing things the way that they've been doing it for 20 or 30 years to please maybe their, we'll say it, their voters or their donors. So if I could snap my finger, I would force them to, to be a little more creative and help their neighbors that might not have those resources. Oh, I like that. All right. Well, for another controversial topic, I suppose, and I, I don't want to put you on the spot with this. Uh, I wanted to ask you about DEI. You're from Puerto Rico. Uh, but I don't want to just assume that you're okay to talk about it. So if you're not, no big deal. And I can just cut this out. Uh, I never want to assume. So please don't feel obligated, but I'm interested to hear your perspective. Uh, you know, a lot has been said in animal welfare as it relates to diversity and inclusion over the last couple of years. I think a lot of real change has taken place uh, in some areas. And I think that's great, but obviously it's not nearly enough. But I don't think we can hold each other accountable on these issues, hold our organizations accountable, unless we are talking about it. So, you know, if you're comfortable, I'd love to, to chat with you about DEI. But again, no pressure. No, I can only, you know, I, I can only talk about my experience in animal welfare. I can tell you that I, I have an experience. I've been given every opportunity to grow in this industry, and uh, I'm very glad that I was given every opportunity I would say that I know that some of my coworkers probably haven't been given the same opportunity. So 
I think Ed Jamison said it right. We were in a meeting together and he pointed out that he, he only thought about it from his point of view and his point of view was that he was given every opportunity. He wasn't thinking about the people who weren't and that resonated with me. And we started talking a little bit about it more because we probably had similarities in how we got to where we, where we got. And the reality, John, is that I, I haven't experienced that. I have experienced code switching, which I think we should talk about code switching more as we talk about the DEI, because I really do think that's the stressor for a lot of uh, professionals, that they have to switch on the way they conversate with other folks to get themselves to a place of success. And I'll say that I probably experienced a lot of code switching in my career I think that we're doing better in DEI. I'm so proud of the work that Best Friends is doing internally and externally. And I, and and that's just me. I, I want to give credit to where credit's due. I think uh, Best Friends really doing a, a very, very good job and being the leader in it. And we're still learning. We're still doing our own internal <laughs> um, self-look. But I really do think that we're doing very, very well. I just challenge people outside of animal welfare to look at it that way, to start looking at it, not from their own perspective, but someone else's perspective. And how can they help that person get to where they need to be? So start looking at everybody as an individual and give opportunities to that individual to get to where they want to be in this industry. And then I think our industry in, in 20 years is going to look a lot more balanced because uh, we looked at individuals. So that's where I come from. That's my perspective. But saying all of that, and I, I think I'm now preaching to the choir because I know you love open adoptions. I do think that we do need to do some self-examinations in the way we of all adoption process and foster process to really make sure that we're given the right opportunity for everyone to be a solution to our to animal welfare uh because i really do think that that's still happening is that folks because they talk different they look different they might not look like us are not given an opportunity to adopt out animals and they're not being included in this solution. So I'm glad you brought it up because if I can get at least one or two organizations that might be foster based to really look at their adoption process and say, wait, I need to include everyone into part of this solution. I hope that I, that I can encourage it. And my staff here is at all the time about open adoptions. I'm a big believer that we, I tell them we're not open adoptions. We could do more. Um, uh, we can do more. We can do more. Why did we ask that question? Why did we look at that person and say, and I do that every single day because I really do believe that everyone is a solution to this problem. So I appreciate you asking me that because that's that's my soapbox is uh, the adoption process and, and DEI. Well, you said the term code switching. That's something I've heard before and I have an idea of what it means, but can you explain it from your perspective uh, and and maybe yeah. help me understand how code switching impacts your work. You know, the ultimate definition is, or I'll say the general definition of it is, is the practice of someone alternating how they speak to someone, so their language, 
to someone that's different than them. So for example, I think the easiest example for me is regionally we speak different. Uh, I'm from the South, so I say y'all a lot, you know. Folks always ask me if I'm from Texas because the way I speak, but that's that's the easy example. So code switching would be I now speak different because you're not from the same region. Uh, but when you get to the DEI piece of it is that I had a I had to speak white. I had to speak to a language that was more acceptable, or I had to present myself. I had to switch who I was from when I was at home to now in the business to really stand out. And that's really what code switching is in the business world is a lot of folks have to tie themselves up, tie, dress different, act different, speak different to, to get in their career further. And usually it means that they have to leave who they are and, and be more white. Is it for fear of, you know, I won't be taken seriously or, you know, I won't be as successful. I mean, I don't know. I say fear of, but it's really just the truth. If I don't act or speak a certain way, then my board member or county commissioner or a colleague in my own department, they just won't hear what I have to say. Um, I, I would say for me and personally, it was the fear of I have to fit into this culture so that I'm not looked as different. I don't know collectively where as a movement we've been, but I know that was my, uh, my fear was that I, I needed to kind of fit in so I can grow and I, I can be there. I think, you know, if we look at it from the 10,000 view, there's code switching in everything we do to there's some degree of it that it's okay. That's just business. That's, that's relationships. That's, uh, everything in life. We, we, we adapt ourselves to the, the place that we're in. But when folks start feeling like they don't, that they have to switch who they really are deep down so that they, they could fit in to a culture that's been set. That's when we're kind of like, well, that's, that's a lot of stress from, 27 year old young professional who really wants to be in animal welfare, but they feel like they have to speak different. That's where it kind of gets into a way like, no, let's not, that's not right. What can we do about it? It's just heartbreaking to think really freely that, you know, as much as we talk about diversity and acceptance and, you know, in 2022, people should be proud of who they are, that our differences are what makes us stronger, that, you know, there are people in our lives, every single one of us, there are people in our lives who just don't believe their key to success is for them to be themselves. You mentioned the work that Best Friends is doing internally with DEI and of course other national organizations, a lot of great local shelters, rescues around the country, really leading on these issues as well. Uh, but I don't know, I suppose it's gonna sound incredibly naive, but hopefully we can get to a point where everyone is able to be as unapologetically themselves as I am and things like code switching are, is a thing of the past. So yeah, I hope things are getting better in this regard, if only because we're talking about these issues more than ever before, but it, it's definitely going to take more than conversation and we do have a long way to go. That's for sure. Well, and, and you know, John, I saw this on uh, a post from, uh, I think it was, it was care that post that specifically on the adoption side that we, that 
if we look outside of the culture that we have always looked at as adopters, that there are people, there's millions of people that we haven't touched because we haven't gone to them and asked them to help us. So just in that mirror of the work that we do, let's think about it. How often do we do offsite adoptions in communities that we usually look at as, oh, that's not a community that will adopt out an animal. Well, we never give them the opportunity. We always take from them. We always take their animals from them and we never bring them an animal spayed or neuter vaccinated and ready to roll. They don't understand that that, that happens. So uh, I think at the, in, at the minimum, we should really start looking at all communities as part of the solution. And as a maximum, we should start looking at, at our, not just our hiring practices, but our, our practices on how we look at individuals and staff members and really look at them as individuals. Like, John, what makes you tick? John, where do you want to be in five years? John, how can I get you to stay in animal welfare and grow in animal welfare? Not because you're, uh, you look white or because you look brown or because you, you, you're, but how as an individual, I can pour my life into you so that you can grow and stay. You can feel like you're part of this. You don't have to switch. You, you're an individual that wants to be here. Now I'm going to do my best to get you here. Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, Kim Clonch, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast. <laughs>